Good morning. Uh, today we continue on our series in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So if you uh, brought your Bible, uh, turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 to 6. Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 6. Uh, just to remind us, uh, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were facing persecution and possible death. And so they were tempted to turn from Christ and just return uh, to their old Jewish faith, the faith of the Old Testament. Uh, they didn't think that in doing so they were denying God, but by turning from Christ, they denied God's salvation. Uh, the Old Covenant served its purpose in its time and was now obsolete. It was not the way to have a relationship with God. We now come to God directly through Christ. And so that's where we are at, uh, Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Will you pray with me? Our Father, let us uh, come to your word uh, with a sober heart, with all seriousness. Let us prayerfully consider what it is that you are saying. And Father, we ask that you would uh, use your word uh, to shape and to mold our heart today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's purpose has been and always will be God's people living under God's authority in his garden paradise. That's what we had in the Garden of Eden. But because of the fall, we were exiled from the garden. We are outside God's presence. 
But God in his grace has provided restoration to that original purpose, to be God's people. And so the Bible is God's story of redemption, him bringing us back, him forming and saving up people with whom he will dwell and who will worship him. This covenant of grace has unfolded in history from Eden to Abraham to Moses and the promised land. But all of it was pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. He is the second Adam. He is true Israel. He is the son of David enthroned in glory. And our text this morning is comparing the glory that was in the Old Testament, epitomized by Moses himself in light of the greater glory that we find in Christ himself. Moses represents the whole of the Old Covenant. He is this overarching figure in the Old Testament. There are other great figures, David, Elijah, but none is greater than Moses. And so this would have resonated with this this group of Jewish believers. They would have known that Moses was chosen by God and sent by God to represent God and to speak for God to his people. They would know that Moses was the great deliverer. He was the one that led Israel from slavery and bondage in Egypt, which becomes the prime example of salvation in the Old Testament. It was Moses who led the people to Sinai, where God formed them from this group of tribal uh, family kind of idea into a nation in covenant with God. Moses was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Hear what God says about him in Numbers 12. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. And I speak with him face to face. I speak to him clearly and not in riddles. He sees God as he is. God spoke to other men. God had other prophets, but none in the Old Testament was greater than Moses. But Moses himself promised that there would be another prophet. There would be a greater prophet. Moses is the great mediator 
He is the one who interceded with God on behalf of the people when they worshipped the golden calf. In Exodus 32, God says to Moses, let my wrath burn against Israel that I may consume them and I will make a great nation out of you. But Moses pleaded with God. He pleaded for the people. He was their intermediator to God. Moses' brother Aaron may have become the high priest who mediated between God and his people through the sacrificial system, a a representation of atonement for sin. But Moses stands above as the true advocate and mediator between God and his people. And in Deuteronomy 34, Israel's about to go in the promised land, and God takes Moses to the top of a mountain. And he says, look at the land. But because of your sin, you're not going in. And Moses dies on that mountain. But the Bible tells us that God himself buried Moses. What a great honor. There was a glory to Moses and a role he played in the unfolding drama of redemption throughout the Bible. But what does our text say in verse 3? Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was great. But Jesus is always greater. And Jesus is worthy of more glory. Why? Because Moses and the whole of the Old Testament is a covenant of promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. The old covenant really is the gospel in seed form. It's why uh, Paul could say in Galatians 3 uh, that God foreseeing that he would justify the Gentiles, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Abraham was saved because he had faith in the God of promises. It's perhaps not the gospel as we would present it today, but Abraham is justified by faith in what God said. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. He is the realities of those promises given. 
Verse 6 of our text tells us Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. Moses and the Old Testament promises were never intended to be an end in themselves. They were always provisional, always temporary. They always pointed forward to Christ, who is God's final message of salvation in his life, death, and resurrection. Think back to Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. You can turn back just a page or two. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1, God says, long ago, God spoke at many times and in many ways to our fathers by the prophets. That's how God spoke to us. But now in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. God spoke salvation in the Old Testament, but now God speaks in his son. It is the definitive and final message of salvation in Christ. The old covenant is now obsolete because the new covenant has come in Christ. The old covenant is superseded by the new. Moses isn't being minimized. Jesus is being magnified. Moses and the old covenant fade in the brightness of the glory of Christ. As New Testament believers, we sometimes think of the old covenant in more negative terms. The old covenant was all about works. And the New Testament is all about grace. But that kind of thinking misses the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was not salvation by works. It never was. The Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. No one in the Old Testament will be in heaven because they were good enough. What does Paul tell us in Romans 3? None is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have sinned. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In ourselves, in our old nature, we are all sinners and under the condemnation of God for our sin. No one 
is good. Billy Graham wasn't. He wasn't good enough. Not your grandmother. Not even Susan Huber. <laughs> if you're visiting, that's my mom. And everyone thinks she's a saint. Now she's married to my dad, so, you know, it's kind of have to be. <laughs> Just calling him like I see him. I'm sorry. <laughs> not David, not Elijah, not Moses. All are sinners in need of a Savior. There's no difference between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint. We are all saved the same way. Union with the crucified and risen Christ. The difference is simply the redemptive historical setting. Old Testament saints looked forward to what Christ would do. While we, as New Testament saints, look back at what he accomplished. But together, Old Testament and New Testament saints look forward to that day when Christ will return. And our hope is the return of Christ and his taking us back to Eden the new creation where righteousness reigns. Together, we hear Jesus say in Revelation 2, 7, to the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We have a picture of this, of Jew and Gentile of every kind of people and language all together worshiping God on his throne. In Revelation 7, it says, Behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to his Lamb. The focus of the whole Old Testament is Christ. In Luke 24, uh, it's the day of Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with uh, 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 two of his disciples who he does not allow them to recognize him. And they're speaking of the reports of Jesus' resurrection. And this is what Jesus says to them in verses 26 and 27 of Luke 24. Jesus says, what is it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and die and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them all the scriptures, the things pertaining to 
himself. The focus of the Old Covenant is Christ mediated to Old Testament believers through promises, types, and sacrifices. Jesus is the promised one. He is the the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He is the, the seed of Abraham through whom the nations would be blessed. Jesus is the great prophet who speaks God's final word to his people. He is the son of David who sits on his father's throne forever. He is enthroned in glory right now. And Jesus is our great high priest who atoned for the, sacrif- uh, for the sins of his people. Jesus is not only the high priest, he is also the sacrifice. And he enters the, the true holy of holies, the presence of God, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own precious blood obtaining redemption forever. As an Old Testament saint brought a sacrifice to the temple, in their heart through faith they embraced that sacrifice, they were embracing Christ himself. as their sacrifice looked forward to who Christ was and what he would do. What does John the Baptist tell us in John 1? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As the the last of the Old Testament prophets, John is the one to say, here is the one that our worship has been about. We're looking at him now. Jesus was the substance of the old covenant. He is the the great day of jubilee. He's the manna, the bread out of heaven. He is the Sabbath rest. Think of what Paul says in Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Israel, all were under the cloud, meaning the Shekinah glory. They all passed through the sea, the Dead Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they were all drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. All the goodness, all the provision, all the promises that we see in the Old Testament is found in Jesus Christ. The the people in the wilderness, you remember Moses strikes the rock and the water comes forth. Another time he's supposed to speak to the rock. 
Twice, twice, they literally drank water from a rock. But that rock is supposed to represent something else to those people and to us. As we realize that the water, which is life-giving sustenance and refreshment, is a type of Christ for us. It reminds us of who he is and what he does. Matthew tells us in chapter 11 that the law and the prophets prophesied until John. The law and the prophets all point us to Christ. But now that Christ has come, we don't have to point to the types and the sacrifices anymore. They have served their purpose. And now they no longer do what they once did. The sacrifices mediated Christ to the Old Testament saints. But now that Christ has come, he has lived, he has died, and he has been raised, our faith is directly in him and what he has done. We can't go back to that old way of life and religion. To go back is to deny what Christ accomplished. And so it's to deny Christ himself. And to deny Christ is to deny the salvation that he brings. And so there is no salvation left in the types and the sacrifices. It's all in Christ now. Because that's what they pointed to. And if we go back to them, then there's no salvation for us. In the Old Testament economy, the, the types and the sacrifices were mediating Christ to, to us. And so they were efficacious for salvation by faith. But no longer. What was once true religion from God now has become false worship and does not lead to life. And so that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is telling these Jewish believers. Don't go back and think God's okay with that. Because Christ has come. Your faith is in him. Colossians 2, the, the old covenant worship is a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Or think about Hebrews 10.1, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities. Why would we go back when the reality for which we hope for has come? It doesn't make any sense. I, I don't know the date, but sometime uh, in August, sometime this month, was, uh, it was or is my 20th anniversary of asking Jennifer to marry me. 
Fortunately, uh, she's not real sentimental, so I don't have to remember the date. <laughs> I dated her while she was in dental school, about midway through. And I enjoyed our dating relationship. It was exciting and it was fun. But for all that I enjoyed about it, I don't want to go back to it. Not because it was bad, but because marriage is so much better. Dating someone is supposed to lead somewhere. It's not intended to be an end in itself. Dating is temporary and provisional. And God willing should lead someone to a life-encompassing and better relationship. The seeds of love and commitment find fuller expression within the covenant of marriage. Going backwards from the full reality back to that which is temporary and provisional is counterintuitive. And so that's what our text is saying to these Jewish Christians, seeking to go back to old covenant worship is insanity. It doesn't make sense to go back to temporary and provisional when the fullness of Christ himself has come. Now, as we read this text about these Jewish believers, there is this temptation to judge them because it does seem silly, doesn't it? And of course, we would never do anything like that. But are we really any different, at least sometimes? We say, I would never go back. I would never deny Christ. Sounds a little like Peter the night before Jesus died, doesn't it? Peter says, everyone else may deny you, Lord, but not me. I'd die for you. And we all know what happened. Before morning, he denies Christ three times. We may not flat out deny Christ, but do we downplay our allegiance while we're in certain circles? We fear the ridicule or the persecution we might face because we're a Christian. That's not much different than these Jewish believers. Or think about every time we sin. Every time we sin, we are saying something about our relationship with God in Christ. When we sin, it's in fact us saying, I know better than God, or I'm going to make my own decisions, at least this time, or God's way really isn't best. 
When we sin, we are questioning God's wisdom, his lordship, or his goodness. We are denying who he is in our life. Sometimes we're tempted to go back to the life we once knew. We forget the heartache and pain, and we remember it as better than it really was. Kind of like Israel in the wilderness, eating manna every day. Oh, how we wish to go back to Egypt, where we had onions and cucumbers and leeks. They had some memories of good food, but they forgot about the slavery and the bondage. They forgot about their children being put to death. Too often we have this tendency to whitewash the past and remember it better than it really was. And so that's what these Jewish believers were doing. They were in the midst of persecution, so they were longing for a life that once was, trying to avoid the suffering they were facing in that moment. But by doing so, they were drifting from Christ. And so our text, the very beginning, in verse 1, it tells them, consider Christ. Look to him. Remember who he is and what he's done. Think about what he has promised you as you face difficulties and persecutions this side of eternity. Pat preached last week from Hebrews 2. This is verses 14 to 15. This is who Jesus is. Jesus took on our Flesh that through death he might destroy the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver us all who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. When our minds want to think better about the past, ask God, help me to remember what it was really like. And then let me see you clearly how much better you are. The world thinks that Christianity is binding. It's all these do's and don'ts. It's God raining on our parade. I think it was uh, A.W. Pink who talked in his book, The Sovereignty of God, who said, uh, we misunderstand liberty. Liberty, true liberty, is not doing whatever we want. But the freedom to be who God made us to be. When we get to do whatever we want, We're a slave of our own desires. And our desires are never satisfied. 
Christ has been victorious over life, death, and Satan. Remember that God is for you. That he loves you. That he is with you. It's easy to doubt that, particularly when life isn't going our way. And Satan is really good at whispering all the things that we've done as he tries to discourage us from walking in faith. Just this morning as we began the service, in my mind I was praying. All of a sudden I had a flood of guilt. I was keenly aware of a whole mess of sins that I've committed over my life. And in that moment, there were doubts. How, how, how could God love me? But he does. Nothing I've done, nothing I will do, nothing you've done, nothing you will do surprises him. And when he died for you, he died for all those sins so that they can be forgiven. And the guilt of the past and the failures of maybe this week shouldn't discourage you from coming to him. See, Satan can't change who you are. If you are in Christ, you are safe. You are his. He cannot change that. But he can try to affect your life so that you don't live in the victory that is yours. That you live doubting and discouraged. But that's not what God wants for you. And so we need to consider who Christ is, what he has done, and what he has promised us. What does God say in Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we do this, as we consider Christ, it's not simply us determining by our own willpower to be and to do better, to think good thoughts. It's the spirit of the living God in us. It's believing the truth of what God says. If you are united to Christ through faith, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. And so we can be confident that the work that Jesus began in us will continue until the day he returns. 
And in that day, we will be perfected because we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And one of the wonderful things that God has given us in this journey of considering Christ is the local church, which is given to us for our good and our protection. We are the the bride and the body of Christ together. Our text says that we are the house of God, a spiritual temple in which the Spirit dwells. Think of what Paul says. He says a similar thing in Ephesians 2. He says, in Christ you also are being built together into a dwelling place for for God by his Spirit. God is building us together to be his dwelling place forever. This reality is individually applied, meaning we all come to faith at different points and times, but we each become a Christian and are incorporated into the body. The Christian life is not to be lived alone. We have a corporate identity in Christ. We're a bride, we're a body, we're a spiritual nation, a temple of the living God. Our lives are not meant to be lived alone, but in the context of some local church where we find fellowship and encouragement, where we find correction in love. It's where we grow together into the image of Christ. And the local church, in spite of its blemishes, because it's filled with imperfect people, is God's gift to us. In Ephesians 4, Paul says the church is given so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind and doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and by deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up together in every way into Christ who is our head. In him, the whole body is joined and fitted together, and every member is equipped so that when each of us is working properly, the body grows as it builds itself up in love. The church is central to our growth and what God wants to do in our life, both individually and corporately. And it's the church that helps us to consider Christ. We all have ups and downs, don't we? We have times of of struggles, times of doubts. But the wonderful thing is, when one is weak, another is strong. So that we can encourage and strengthen one another. And so this morning, consider Jesus. Ask him to give you a clear vision of who he is, what he has done, so that you might persevere in the midst of life's trials and hardships. And recognize that we see Christ better 
when we live in the reality of, of being God's family with other believers together as the house of God. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we ask that your Spirit would work in us this morning, that you would help us to see areas where we uh, need to grow, that uh, we would recognize weaknesses, and that we'd be willing to be honest with those that you've put in our life to ask them to help us uh, to grow in our faith, that we'd ask them to to pray for us, and that we'd be willing to pray for others. Father, build us up as a family and as a household of God, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.